As I record this, we have just one month left of the summer. Like a kid anticipating the start of a new school year, I'm already mourning the loss of longer days, warmer temperatures, and a near-constant excuse to eat ice cream. Unlike a kid anticipating the start of a new school year, however, I am not scrambling to finish my summer reading. You remember those summer reading assignments, right? Even if you were a book-obsessed kid like I was, I'm willing to bet that you had to power through at least some required reading that you didn't enjoy. In the spirit of summer reading, today's episode has a bit of an academic approach as we take a long, hard look at George Orwell's 1945 book, Animal Farm. I, for one, read this over a summer at some point during my high school career, and to tell you the truth, I wasn't a big fan. Knowing that the book is a political allegory, however, I was intrigued about what it would be like to revisit it as an adult and a registered voter. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. Animal Farm is a barnyard metaphor for the events leading up to the Russian Revolution in 1917, into the Stalinist era of the Soviet Union. The pigs, led by Napoleon and Snowball, become the ruling class around the farm after leading rebellion against the human farmer. And while things seem to be going well at first, it gets real dark real fast. Napoleon pushes out the kinder, gentler Snowball, making him a scapegoat for anything that goes wrong around the farm. The new leader seems to immediately start chipping away at the rights that the animals had agreed upon as part of the philosophy of animalism, and soon he's purging the community of dissenters and working his followers to death. Literally. Many of the residents of Animal Farm maintain their blind trust in him until the end, when it's discovered that the pigs have been trying to adapt the mannerisms of the humans they once claimed evil so they can become allies with them. See? I told you it was pretty crazy. It would be impossible to discuss a book like this without getting political, so I'm going to give you a heads up now that there's some heated conversation ahead about how Orwell's allegory might seem familiar to those of us living in America in 2018. Regardless of your politics, I ask you to keep an open mind going into this episode, on which I'm lucky enough to have Meredith Dawson as a guest. A native of the Chicago suburbs, Meredith now lives in LA, where she writes for film and TV. She's currently working on Hulu's Four Weddings and a Funeral, which I, for one, can't wait to watch. Meredith is a big fan of pizza and Frasier, plus any and all serial killer-oriented pop culture. If you haven't subscribed to SSR on iTunes yet, I'd love for you to do that now. Please also submit a review if you're loving it. If there was ever an episode that might inspire you to get involved in the conversation about the podcast, this might be it, so check us out on social media too. Follow us at SSRPod on Twitter and Instagram, and like us on Facebook at the SSR Podcast. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. I'm so excited. Yay. Hello. Yay, Animal Farm. <laughs> Woo. Sad but true. Sad but true. <laughs> so to kick off, I'd love if you could tell me about your history with this book and why you decided to read it for the show. Absolutely. It's kind of a traumatic answer. Um, I was in advanced English in eighth grade and we had to read this book. And eighth grade is the year I stopped reading books. I started skimming them in high school because I'm a little piece of shit. But this is one of the last books I remember reading. And um, my teacher, we had a debate at the end of the reading session and the class was split into two. And we're supposed to debate whether um, Napoleon was guilty or not. And I was 
was on the team to debate why he was guilty. And we presented an argument. It was so intense. And the end of the day, we lost because even though the things we were proving were like in the book, we did not prove exactly how he was guilty. And it has haunted me since. And that was 14 years ago. And I've never forgotten about it. (laughs) It feels like you should have an opportunity for redemption. Like you've had to read the book again. I forced you to read the book again. I feel like we should like go back to your teacher and give you a second chance because that's bullshit. It is. Well, looking back on it, she was right. But now I was like, you know, it's like now I can read. I'm going to go back in time, say what I know now, and I'm going to win that debate and life will think things will work out for me. Right. We're going to get everything back on track. The world will be like (laughs) as it should. Um, Well, I'm really glad you picked it because the listeners know the last few episodes that have aired have been Babysitter's Club and Sloppy First. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really cool that we're digging into something that's a little bit more in the like required reading space because Mm -hmm. these are the books that so many people share, whether they are happy that they share them or not. So many of us have read Animal Farm myself included, and I also hated it. Um, (laughs) Not because I lost a debate about it, but just because I remember the experience of like being assigned it over summer reading and just dragging my ass through it at the beach with my family and like complaining every day about having to read this book, which in hindsight, like it's 130 pages. I don't, I'm not really sure what my (laughs) issue was. There was no reason it should have taken me a full week of vacation. Mm Mm-hmm. So younger selves. I know. It was so dramatic. So I'm glad we got a chance to go back. I think maybe you and I both hopefully will have a different attitude about it on this yes. second time around. What was your first impression as you started getting back into it? Those first few pages, those first few chapters, what were you like, thinking? This sounds really familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was interesting going back to it because I think at the time I didn't, I hated the book at the time and I didn't, wasn't really paying attention to the allegories and how it related specifically to history. I was like, oh, this is based on people, but I had no real concept of historical truth. So now a little bit older, I'm like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. And as a writer specifically, it's really interesting to write something that's so good and based on real people, but it feels like it's its own story. So that I was captured by that, which is kind of cool. Yeah, he really did such an amazing job, I thought, of specifically describing and like pairing each animal with a different person, like the Mm -hmm. details with which he described each species even like as their own type of person within what he saw at the time as the Russian Revolution and what was happening in the early 20th century. It is like pretty amazing the depth of the allegory here. Right. It's also interesting. Sometimes in politics, it's hard to see another person's perspective. So I think he did a really great job of being of explaining oh, this is why some would side with Snowball. This is why some would side with Napoleon. This is why Boxer was this way. It was a really good way to articulate a different perspective, which I think now especially is very hard to do and to see. Well, and you kind of alluded to this, but there's a whole new way to read this now in 2018 as we're recording this because we are in a very different political climate, obviously, and we're Mm. in the United States and not in, in Europe as George Orwell was. But we, I think are sensing a lot of these same themes in our current political world. And so I remember in high school reading it and thinking that this all seemed so far off and now Mm -hmm. reading it. And I think a being like more aware of the stakes in my own life in a way that I wasn't when I was 14 years old, but also picking up on some of the things that I'm seeing now in to put it bluntly, Trump's America, it really like gave it a new depth of meaning. 
I only read this and I found it's one, I think it's self-fulfilling prophecy, but I would read it. And anytime anything happened, I could find a, like a specific example of what exactly happened between like the past two years and now in, in the election and very specific parts and elements of why Trump was such an enigma. Like it's the exact same things happen in the book. And I was like, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Trump really is a Napoleon the pig. I think he's, is Trump a genius? Like, I don't, I don't know now. Do you think this is Trump's favorite book? He doesn't know how to read, so. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I do think there might have been, I read somewhere that there was like a cartoon adaptation, so maybe he tuned into that at some point. Probably was taking notes in his study. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of cartoons, I have to say, this is probably embarrassing to admit, but I remember this experience the first time I read it too, where in the first few pages, I sort of pictured the character's as like Charlotte's Web, the animated version. Yep, Mm -hmm. you have to. You have to, and it's kind of a weird feeling because it lulls you into this false sense of security of like, oh, this is this nice animal story and look at the cute little pigs and the horse. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, things are getting really fucking weird. (laughs) Very quickly you're just like, this is not Charlotte's Web. (laughs) It is not Charlotte's Web. And to to give a little bit of context um, before we dive even deeper into this conversation. The book was published in England in 1945, which was about four months after the Nazis surrendered. George Orwell wrote it in response to what he saw happening in Russia, um, namely with what he saw as like this sort of promising socialist movement cropping up after the czar left and it being channeled instead into this like terrifying totalitarian regime under Stalin. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote this book assigning each animal like a different character so snowball the nice pig or the pig that i think is the hero for most of us (laughs) he represents leon trotsky who was like the socialist guy and then napoleon who is the evil pig (laughs) is stalin so that's sort of the context here something else that i think we should talk about is the fact and i don't know which version like which if you read it like in a physical form or if you read in digital but Um, something I was reading a lot about is the fact that the original book was subtitled. Ooh, wait, yours has a really cool cover. Meredith is showing me her cover and that's not what (laughs) I have. Mine has like this cute little pink piglet on it. Oh, that is, that's the one I'm used to. This was from Amazon and like it's published weird where there it's, it's like a bootleg book for some reason. Oh, anyway, but this is what the, it looks like. It's kind of cool. It reminds me of the movie poster for that. Was it the dictator? That movie, that super controversial Mm -hmm. movie with. Jonah Hill, maybe? That's what it looks like to me. Mm -hmm. On board. That rings true. (laughs) Yes. I'll try to find a picture of it to post in the show notes because I've really never seen that cover before. But yeah, so the subtitle I think of of a lot of the versions of the book is it's, it's called Animal Farm, A Fairy Story which is an interesting line. And um, there are a lot of like schools of thought about why he chose that. Some people think it was like total tongue in cheek. Like he just thought (laughs) how hilarious to call this a fairy story. And then I found a really interesting quote in the intro of my version where he said something to the effect of like, we should call it a fairy story because in fairy stories, there's not really a a real morality. Life just is the way Mm. it is. It's not about good and bad. It's not about people deserving things or not deserving things. Life is just the way that it is. And so in that way, it does ring true as a fairy story. What would you say to that? Um, I would agree with that. It's kind of one of those things where there's something shit just happens. And as we're watching it now, like, oh, I feel like every day it's like, oh, this can't happen. And it happens. And you're like, okay, I guess it's happened. Well, it can't get any worse. And then it just kind of builds up of things that are just 
happening around you. You kind of feel a little bit stuck. So it's hard to get out of that funk, but it, yeah, definitely not a fairy tale and just a story with a beginning, middle and hopefully an end soon. <laughs> hopefully an end soon. And like, I think it's worth noting in terms of an end, like the, the end of the book is sort of just like the rest of the animals on the farm are resigned to the fact that like Napoleon has taken over and he's now turned his back on them and there's no talk of another revolution. The book just kind of closes on them watching as their whole society has been like doomed forever. Right. If this were a fairy tale, Snowball would have come in 40 pages ago and be like, hey, here's what's happening. I want to help you guys. And then Napoleon would be taken out. But that's not what happens. <laughs> no, and he would have been riding Boxer the horse, and Boxer mm-hmm. the horse would have suddenly turned into like a unicorn <laughs> and wouldn't have been taken to a glue factory. Yep. Which was for me like the hardest scene of the book to read for sure. Yeah, that's like really hard for a 14 year old to be like, where are they taking Boxer? <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't remember, like that seems like something I would have remembered being upset about, which makes me think maybe I like was skimming the book when I was a kid. <laughs> but like that visual of this horse who's worked his whole life for the republic of the farm, and now he's mm-hmm. in the back of this truck and there's this reference to his little white nose like peeking out of a window. My heart just broke for him and that was such it's like horrible. a great symbol of what's happening in this whole community. And instead of, you know, boxer being dragged off, it's legal immigrants. <laughs> yeah, and they're very oh. small children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With their noses peeking out. Exactly. Like, can I please come in, please, Mr. Trump? Do you think, like, in hindsight, does it make sense to you that this was a book that was assigned to you when you were in eighth grade as an advanced English student? Kind of. Seventh grade, I feel like would have been too young. In high school, I don't, didn't read any of those books. But it feels sort of like an introduction to you're about to go into high school where you're going to be presented with all these thoughts and ideas and more of a historical knowledge. Because we, I don't, I don't think I, I personally never had a, like a European history class. So I'm actually very ignorant on that part. But I wouldn't, even if I did, I wouldn't have had it before eighth grade. So it's interesting that maybe this seems more like a freshman year book, but then it feels like you're too old for it. I maybe, I don't know, but I think 14, 15 is the right age to do it to introduce you to thoughts and principles and sort of the idea of thinking for yourself so that's the ideal age but it's tricky I think you definitely take different lessons from it as a kid so you just mentioned specifically like this idea of learning from it to think for yourself do you think that was like the number one lesson you learned from it at that time I was so angry about this debate. Um. It really is all about the debate for you. I really wish we could get your teacher back in here and maybe somebody who is from the opposing side and and do a rematch. <laughs> I saw her in February. She's like, you did a great job. And I'm like, no, it haunts me. I think my, yeah, I think my takeaway back then would have been to think for yourself and to sort of put a little effort into not going along with what you're being told, which is that and more now at 28. Well, now it has a more political, sort of bigger picture scope, right? That's how yeah, I felt. Yeah, it, it made me angry. I was like, why aren't they fighting? Why is anyone, why aren't, there's more of just him than whatever. You can kill those dogs in their sleep. <laughs> yeah, he trains those dogs up to like be vicious against all of the other animals. Napoleon essentially just starts changing all of the rules. So mm-hmm. I think we should just start talking about that and about how things were meant to be, what the ideal of the animal farm was, and how he started changing everything, especially after Snowball left. Um, so they rebel against the farmer, who I think it's implied has a drinking problem. Is that right, do you think? Yes. Yeah. That's why they're like, we should never drive alcohol because look at how it turned his life out. Right. P.S., in case you don't get to this later, for me, the high point of the book in terms of 
lightness was when Napoleon like accidentally gets drunk and thinks he's dying <laughs> because he's hungover. That was amazing. They're like, he's dying. He goes ill. I was like, I've been there. I know exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like totally feel you. And the fact that he had people like coming people, animals. See, that's the mind fuck about this book. Wow. Woo. That happened really early in this conversation. <laughs> we are only 14 minutes in. The fact that all the animals were like parading to his bedside because he was like, it's over for me. I'm done. But I'm like, no, you just drank a shit ton of whiskey last night. Yeah, as a, as a true person would do. I'm dying, I'm dying. Right. I'm like, you know, I'm fine. So that's my side <laughs> note. I would like to shout that out as like sort of a positive moment in the book. A little I did laugh lightness. at that. Yeah, that was good. So Mr. Jones, the farmer, is kicked out. And now they have decided that the pigs, as the apparently smartest species on the farm, are going to be in charge. But it's going to generally be ruled by the whole community. Like nobody's going to be senior to anybody else. One of the rules of animalism, actually the overarching principle that all animals are equal. Mm -hmm. So there's like the socialism piece. And then things start to change. So I think especially as we're talking about this, we can bring in what's happening today politically. And (laughs) I'd love to know your take on that. I found some interesting articles that I can bring in too. But um, one of the first things that happens is that they start making the decisions for the whole farm among just this very small group of pigs. Right. Did you draw any parallels to today that early in the book? I didn't really start picking up on a lot of it until later on because at that point it just seemed like if this book is going to be an example of what happens when things turn bad politically, like this seems like a fairly logical next step. Yes, more people are going to be taking power. Or did you already start to feel like, oh, things are starting to feel way too... New immediately. Yeah, immediately. Okay. Yeah, and then today it's the equivalent of like, Paul Ryan and every Republican in Congress and specifically like the debate on women's rights where it's a small or, or health care. It's a small group of white men deciding the health for women everywhere. It's like, oh, just this one small group is doing it for everybody, but not everybody wants the same thing. So just like, ugh. Okay, true to life. This is this is terrifyingly real. Most of the animals on the farm seem to be in agreement, at least early on, like, well, the pigs mm-hmm. are smarter, so it's fine. Right. Well, these are people we elected, so it's fine. Yep. And there aren't really, there's not a ton of opposition in Animal Farm. Like, there's the horse, Molly, who is only opposed to the revolution because she wants to have ribbons in her mane and, like, be able to live her glam life as a show pony and doesn't like the fact that they're cutting out all of those bells and whistles. But there's nobody really fighting against the pigs early on. And I think it would have been interesting for there to be a little bit more tension. Right. Yeah. There's what they just witnessed someone do something that they had promised. Like we promised we're going to do this rebellion. We do it. So you're like, oh, okay. I trust them. I'm going to let them handle it. They probably know what's best. They just did this one great thing that I couldn't have done. So maybe they're worth putting my trust in, which is interesting. Well, and it maybe it's almost that concept. If we're talking about drawing parallels to today, it's people who are thinking, I couldn't have, quote unquote, drained the swamp. I couldn't have come in and disrupted all of these political dynasties, if that's what you want to call it. So if he has the balls to do it, like, let him try. Right. And the whole stupid arguing, well, he is a businessman and like, he's a billionaire and I'm not. So he must be doing something right. It doesn't make sense when you think about it for more than five seconds. <laughs> right. And in the same way, it's like, oh, well, they're pigs, so they're smarter. I did think it was interesting. The book was, like, rejected, I think, by four or five publishers before mm-hmm. it was bought, which makes sense to me. It is, like, definitely 
a crazy concept, and I can see how this would have been super hit or miss with any editor. But T.S. Eliot was one of the editors that he submitted it to, who's obviously like a literary giant in his own right. And apparently he wrote in his rejection letter, your pigs are far more intelligent than the other animals and therefore the best qualified to run the farm. Oh. Yeah. So he basically didn't buy the whole principle of the book because he was like, well, why are you upset? Why does this message need to be out there if it's so clear that the pigs were the right people to be in charge all along? Did he finish the book? (laughs) I mean, I mean, did he finish reading it? Yeah. It would not seem that way. I I wish we knew either way. But yeah, I mean, I think like that's very interesting and like old school perspective of like, well, it's clear that these were the smart ones and maybe they should have just let it be. So I think that was an interesting piece of like literary history. So the next thing that kind of happens after this small committee takes control, Snowball is still around. Sadly, he's not around for the whole of the book. Then they start building this windmill. Mm-hmm. And the windmill becomes like the centerpiece of the book. For me, the windmill was one of the few things that made it feel like a fairy story because I feel like in every like cartoon fairy tale, there's this like cute little windmill in the center. And so that was like the visual for me. But actually, the windmill is kind of this symbol of political dissent and warring factions. Yeah, it's the one, I feel like it's the one topic of debate that will always come up that will clearly divide and depending how you feel on the windmill, it's like, oh, this is where you essentially, these are what your political ideals are in a larger sense, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And Snowball sells it really well. Like Snowball, as usual, because Snowball is Mr. Charisma and makes great speeches. He (laughs) wants the animals to believe that if they have this windmill, they're going to have like heated and cold water and their stalls are going to be more comfortable because they're going to have electricity. So like he has this really great picture for the future, which again, like you can think about any political candidate now talking about what they're promising their constituents if they're to win an election. This was interesting because I I don't agree with this for the entire book, but the, the debates on the windmill were very reminiscent of any of the, the presidential, uh, what is the word I'm thinking of? Presidential Platforms. debates. Debates. Platforms debates, because you'd watch Hillary Clinton argue with with knowledge uh, being articulate, and then Donald Trump would just make a face, and like it, it was clearly a big difference in education and preparation and just the level of one of you has read a book and knows what you're talking about and the other of you is just making faces and just making lies up and not putting an effort into it. So that was very timely as well. <laughs> yeah, and the way that they describe and compare the two pigs, George Orwell writes, Napoleon was not much of a talker, but he had a reputation for getting his own way, Donald Trump. Yeah. And then he says, Snowball was a more vivacious pig than Napoleon, quicker in speech and more inventive, but was not considered to have the same depth of character. That also sounds right. Yep. It's eerily similar. And then later on, he writes, at the meetings, Snowball often won over the majority by his brilliant speeches, but Napoleon was better at canvassing support for himself in between times. I think if you if you took the cover of this book and you gave it to some eighth graders and were like, read this book, what do you think? They'd be like, oh, someone wrote this a week ago. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty creepy. I was trying to think about, because I always like to ask guests if this book were to be written now, would it have to change? How would it be different? Or could it just kind of exist as is and would it have a similar reception i think this book could be released in 2018 and it would seem creepily timely yes you'd have to change comrades to patriots Mm. um but there are like little specific things you'd change but it could definitely be put out today and still make sense and you can find a person for all of those ideals i guess what did you think about the use of the word comrades like that that was so creepy 
It is creepy. It's funny because one of my favorite shows is The Americans, and I'm um, aspiring polyglot, so I'm actually learning Russian now. Oh, cool. Um, so that was also tied into this, but it's meant to be the one thing that tells you where this kind of takes place. You're like, oh, the Soviet Union. Okay, great. It's like, you know, the one little sprinkle. If you didn't get the allegory before, it's the one thing to help you put two and two together. Okay, that makes sense. See, I didn't have that context, so that's helpful. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was super creepy was when the animals would sing that song, Beasts of England. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And there's something really eerie about the sheep just bleeding four legs good, two legs bad over and over again. It's just as if they're brainwashed. There's a super brainwashing vibe. And they sing the song regularly until the end. And then obviously there's more changes to the rules and they're not allowed to sing that song anymore. But every time they sang the song, it gave me the creeps, as so many things in this book did. So (laughs) there is a battle with the humans. There's the windmill falling down. Like there's all of these things that happen, but Snowball kind of becomes the hero because he leads the animals to victory when the humans come and try to like take back Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. He becomes the golden boy. Um, He's like a military hero, essentially. They start awarding like different military prizes. And this part of the book, for some reason, like when I was going back through and reading summaries just to make sure that I had everything on track for our conversation, for -hmm. some reason, this part of the book is the one that's like least memorable for me. Like the battle scenes, then the windmill falls down. And so I feel like I kind of missed this whole part where Snowball is pushed out. Right. It's very quick. Yeah, isn't it? I feel like all of a sudden I was like, wait, I actually don't know what happened to Snowball. I was just Googling this. What happened, I guess, in terms of like that's a military coup is one night someone's in power and the next thing it's over and this is how things are now. That's, the, I guess, the fairy story of it. But there, the, I never saw the movies, but two movie versions and one he gets assassinated by the dogs. The other one where he gets escaped. So it's weird that you never really find out what happens to Snowball. Because I was like, wait, did he die? Because there was some part in the book where I think right before or after the windmill falls the first time, they're like, we heard a gunshot. And I was Mm. like, did they shoot Snowball? And it's never really answered, which I think is kind of interesting. They kept talking about their trotters, which I guess are the like weird hooves on the pig's (laughs) feet. I mean, who knows? It seems like the pigs were pretty dexterous with their trotters. Um, Mm -hmm. So who knows what they did? But yeah, all of a sudden Snowball is gone. Everything sucks, and suddenly Napoleon is taking power, and the windmill has become this symbol of oppression and just basically, like, work till you die instead of this promise of, like, what Animal Farm could have been, which is what Snowball had originally pitched it as. And aside from the fact that Napoleon was like, this idea sucks, and five days later, it was like, hey, this is my idea. I started it. And you're like, huh? It's a, it's a, a, the unique art form of gaslighting, which I've just discovered a couple of months ago what that term meant. <laughs> do you want to, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, do you want to share your, um, your thoughts on gaslighting and how, yes. how you would define it, especially in this context? Yes. So gaslighting is when someone sort of makes you think that you're crazy and then you've made things up that what you see didn't happen and what you hear didn't happen. It's sort of just like making you doubt what you kind of know is true and then you doubt yourself which is kind of interesting so specifically in this in the book it's like i'm pretty sure you're not allowed to have alcohol like oh no no no, we are we just can't have it in excess you just don't remember it. And you're like then you doubt you're like oh maybe i i don't remember it and then you don't remember what you don't know and it's something that actually happens in like trial cases too when you in specific language when you try to confuse a witness it's 
some real mind fuckery is what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good synonym, mind fuckery, generally. <laughs> I think Boxer is like such a symbol of this whole book. And um, we mentioned him briefly before, but I think now that we've introduced the windmill and we've introduced kind of the general direction that things are moving, I think that Boxer's story is sort of an interesting commentary on like the healthcare system and mm-hmm. retirement and what people are promised in terms of social security because Boxer has this idea that if he works hard enough his whole life he's gonna get to go out to pasture basically and like hang out in a field because that's what the animals had decided up front and he just works and works and works and works and works until he literally collapses. Mm-hmm. I never I never really thought about that translation of it and that's exactly right where work and work and work, work hard, America first, whatever hours a week. And then when you're at the party, like, hey, we don't need money for you. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You need to pay for this yourself. Why should the government take care of you? It's like, well, I worked for the government. It seems tit for tat. Yeah. And he keeps saying like, Napoleon is right. Napoleon is right. He has this blind trust in the government. I am going to read this one quote that I found in an article I mentioned to you before mm-hmm. we started recording. The article is from Salon and I'm Definitely going to include a link to this in the show notes because I think everybody right. should read it, regardless of your politics, regardless of whether or not you agree with some of the <laughs> parallels we're drawing. Like, this article is worth reading. Um, mm-hmm. This is a quote about Boxer and kind of like what the parallels are between his story and what's happening today. A horse on the farm is incredibly strong and is the hardest worker, although he is not very intelligent and thus is susceptible to manipulation. As he nobly tolls harder and harder for less and less while Napoleon grows richer and richer, the horse nonetheless frequently repeats in blind obedience, Napoleon is always right. Similarly, Trump portrays himself as the champion of the forgotten blue-collar worker, and he won their votes in several key states. But Trump's policies favor the wealthy at the expense of the working class by sabotaging the health care system, eroding the social safety net, and granting enormous tax cuts for the wealthy, including himself. Uh, yep. Yep. It's not great. All these people who are the working class and work in steel mills and working on farms who, we're going to help you out, all these great things, and it's like, Oh, really? Where's your health care coming from when you get sick from whatever? You know that Obamacare is how you got health care when you were 25 and you didn't have a job or whatever. Just like, oh, mind fuckery. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then all this time the pigs have like moved into the house, which was something mm-hmm. that they had agreed early on. Like no animal should sleep in a bed. No animal should wear clothes. No animal should basically engage in all these human behaviors. And as Boxer and all these other animals are literally like killing themselves outside working, the pigs have like slowly moved in on the farm and and on Mm -hmm. the house. Say hi to that tax cut for me. (laughs) When is that trickling down to me? (laughs) Ask the pigs, they know. (laughs) So there's just like so much to talk about in this book. Um, While we're talking about the Salon article, I do want to mention a few other things and a few other of the quotes that I pulled out from there. Oh, where to begin? (laughs) There's so many. Okay, here's a good one. Napoleon's leadership is marked by incompetence and chaos. The incompetence is so extreme as to be comical. Yep. I think how many people have been been fired or left this administration? It's got to be like a million. (laughs) Oh, a million. I think literally a million. Everyone. I mean, I feel like everybody who's brought in is then like swiftly disposed of in some way. Mm-hmm. By selecting only pigs as members of the ruling elite, Napoleon creates a system of racial discrimination. Trump has also been accused of racial discrimination. We talked about that briefly at the mm-hmm. beginning. Okay, Squealer. So Squealer is this small pig that basically works for Napoleon. And I was struggling when I was reading the book. I was kind of trying to figure out, like, is he supposed to represent the media because he's basically mm-hmm. going around to all the animals on the farm and spreading, like, different kinds of messages on 
Napoleon's behalf, or is he just a general surrogate for the government? And he's, then, go ahead. He's Fox News. Oh, he is Fox News. He's mm-hmm. totally Fox News. He's, mm-hmm. according to like Wikipedia or something that I read, he's officially supposed to be a Russian or like a Soviet minister of propaganda. So like, yeah, Fox News. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. And so in this Lawn article, they say, obviously, Squealer is a huge liar. He spreads a ton of bullshit. He's like <laughs> constantly manipulating the rest of the animals on the farm by saying, like, you think that Napoleon wants to work this hard? Like, you think it's easy for him to be in charge? Mm-hmm. Such a sacrifice. In the Sun article, he writes, Similarly, wild theories have been promulgated by Trump and his supporters, such as the birther sham that Obama was born in Kenya and is thus ineligible <laughs> to be president et cetera, et cetera. He then goes through like a long list of examples. But I think Squealer is a very interesting character, especially like you said, when we can think about him in terms of social media or Fox News or like Mm -hmm. any number of news outlets that's basically just like spreading the word of whatever Trump wants people to think. Right. Or like when one of those, one of his minion children was like, his life has gotten so hard since being president. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) He thought it was going to be so easy, Meredith. You're right. That's what I heard. (laughs) I think everybody can do it. It's not like it's hard. With Obama, it was anyone can be president. Now it's a threat like anyone can be president. (laughs) Right. It's no longer the dream. It's like you have no idea who could be coming to you. Very interesting. (laughs) Uh, Just like Napoleon, Trump failed to offer meaningful proposals of his own, but instead campaigned on attacking the proposals of Clinton and President Barack Obama. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Just like, no, you don't want to go with her. Her emails. Let me divert with some bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) Or like this windmill idea is so stupid. How hilarious is this other pig who thinks that a windmill would be cool and then just is like, no, I'm going to take that idea and make it my own. I'll make it my own. It is exactly the same. Oh, boy. (laughs) It, like, kind of makes my skin crawl the more we're talking about it. Yeah. When you really sit and you're just, like, thinking about it, you're like, okay, that is also real. That also happened. This is happening right now. That happened last week. I wonder if, first of all, I wonder if they're still assigning this book. I didn't see anything about that. I always am curious as to the status of the books that I'm reading for the show in school Mm -hmm. districts now. I didn't see anything about this book. I would assume that it is, but I wonder, like, how much teachers are bringing in current events. I hope they are because it seems like such a good way to get kids involved in the discussion. Even kids that like don't want to talk about politics, this would be such a good way to get kids really like wrapping their head around what's happening in the world. Depends on what state you're in. (laughs) Excellent point. I don't think that my high school would have taught it that way. My high school would. And they'd be like, you should think about what's going on and read the news. I definitely come from a a left-leaning city. I'm from Chicago, but I'm from a suburb, a pretty liberal suburb. I think it's liberal. Yeah, it's pretty liberal. (laughs) Okay. I'm from Pennsylvania, wild card. You never know what you're going to get. But I'm from a suburb that is definitely a mix, but Mm -hmm. I would say generally like the sensibility is pretty conservative. And I think that the school would probably not be thrilled for any teacher to be talking about Animal Farm in terms of Donald Trump and Mike Pence and all of the madness that they have unleashed. Now I'm thinking about it, I think we would talk about it because I'm, I remember seeing photos of my teachers because I'm friends with them on Facebook because they're great at the marches and being like, this is bullshit. So yeah, I think they would have brought it into the school. I should find out. I sort of like want to write a letter to my to my high school and be like, I think you should continue to assign this book, even though I probably complained about it to my teacher. <laughs> Take it back, uh, but please continue to assign it and like have different kinds of conversations about it, more up to date mm-hmm. conversations. I might actually text my. I have the English teacher of mine was a, is a family friend. I might text her and be like, Hey, are you still teaching this? <laughs> oh, you totally should. I might have to. 
Well, I think the cool thing too about the modern context is like coming into reading the book again, I honestly hadn't thought much about how it would be related to today's politics. And Mm -hmm. so I had this like anxiety. I'm not going to be able to follow the whole allegory because I'm obviously like extremely rusty on Russian history. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Like I say that as if I was once totally on top of my Russian history. (laughs) I don't know if that was ever true. Maybe for like the day that I had the tests on it in European history class. But it's like kind of cool. Cool is not a great word, but (laughs) I guess it's interesting to have the perspective that like we're living in a world where we actually like can understand the context of a book like this without having to like look to history. I immediately was like, oh, I get what's happening. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, I'm watching this happen, which I, yeah, it's it's not cool, but it's uh, thought provoking. Yeah. (laughs) And I think a different reading experience for kids, because when I was in eighth grade reading this, none of the history made any sense to me. Mm-hmm. And having lived through like some similar vibes in my own world, I would think that as a 15 year old in 2018, I might have a different feeling about this book. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. I had a hard time grasping history because I didn't care. But when you have a, um, a contemporary thing to compare it to, you, you understand it a little bit better. So I think if I were to learn this now as a 14-year-old, I would understand it way better because I could point to specific things that I understood that were in my everyday life. So that is a really um, a good reason why it should be taught today. Yeah. So kind of like the, I would say, the climax of the book after Boxer is taken away very sadly, in the van that Napoleon and Squealer try to pass off as a vet. We know that he is clearly being taken away to be killed. We find out that he actually um, was traded for whiskey so that Napoleon could get drunk again because he's now learned that he's not going to die from being hungover, a lesson Mm -hmm. that, as you said, we all have to learn eventually. (laughs) But then the other horse, who is Boxer's partner I would say like they take care of each other they look out for each other her name is Clover and she stumbles upon this wall where they had once written all their rules and she realizes that all of them have been painted over and changed Mm -hmm. which is so like such a powerful symbol and I think the other interesting thing is that at the beginning of the book Snowball had taken such pride in teaching all the animals to read and write and then Napoleon kind of like let that go. And so by the end of the book, all the animals that are still around who had lived through the revolution, like none of them know how to read anymore. And obviously the new animals that have been born under this new regime, like they haven't been educated either. Right. Unless you were a pig and you went to school. Education is a form of power. So it's a different way to control a group of people in a certain way and, and lord over well. I can read, but you can't. So we should be listening to me unless you have another reason why. And you're like, well, okay. So it's an interesting other kind of tactic to gain power over people, over animals. Uh, You know, it's both. You did it. It's both. (laughs) It's all one and the same. So yeah, but Clover walks into this barn where they had written all of these like very lofty ideals for the farm and where it once said all animals are equal. It now says all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. I think that's how it exactly is worded. And she's, like, devastated. She's like, oh, shit. (laughs) Right. Like, oh, we let this go. And I think her reaction is sort of meant to be, like, a cautionary tale of, like, you can think that you are paying attention and working for the good of everybody else. But if you lose sight of the ideals that you had for your world and your country and the people that you care about, you're going to completely miss all the signs that things are going to shit. Yes. Another 
reason to listen to yourself when you think there are doubts and you're questioning things is to keep questioning until you're like, oh, that makes sense. And, you know, don't be gaslit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I have this quote about Clover from the end of the book. I think it's like right after that moment. The excerpt is, if she herself had any picture of the future, it had been of a society of animals set free from hunger and the whip, all equal, each working according to his capacity, the strong protecting the weak. Instead, she did not know why, they had come to a time when no one dared speak his mind, when fierce growling dogs roamed everywhere, and when you had to watch your comrades torn to pieces after confessing to shocking crimes. So she, I think, in that moment is realizing, like, oh, fuck, like, this is not what I signed up for at all. It's also interesting, they saw Squealer, they caught him, he fell off the stupid ladder, and he was clearly painting over and adding new words. It's interesting that sometimes he would make up these big lies, this is what actually happened. Sometimes he was like... Uh, fuck you. This is this is the way it is now. So at a certain point, he just kind of was just like, this is, this is it. And it's interesting to decide when you want to lie and give flowery truths and when you want to just say how it is and move on with your day. And that's like the fairy story thing. It's like at a yes. certain point, you're just like, oh, no, like this is how the world works. It has nothing to do with right and wrong or who deserves mm-hmm. what. At a certain level, the world just happens because it happens that way. Mm-hmm. So then there's this super creepy, incredibly weird last scene, last (laughs) few scenes of the book. Honestly, I had a lot of trouble getting through this. And then the other morning, it was like Sunday morning, I woke up. I was like, I have to power through these last 60 pages. (laughs) And the last 60 pages, there's just so much like bizarre stuff that happens. And it all begins really when some of the other animals see that the pigs have learned to walk on two feet. And they've, they've been, like, training in secret to do it, right? That's the, That was part of the reveal. Yeah. I don't know why this one detail in particular, like, really makes me want to throw up. Just the idea of them, like, looking into the house and seeing these creepy pigs, like, awkwardly walking on their, like, <laughs> back hooves. I'm sorry. Their back trotters. Um <laughs> I'm like, that, it just really freaked me out. And then, like, the last section of the book, there's all of these situations where the other animals see that they're walking around in the house on their back legs. They're getting better at it. And then, ultimately, they invite these humans over for a dinner party, and they become indistinguishable from the humans. Yeah. It's also very scary how quickly it happens. The, the majority, like, the first two-thirds of the book are all about the revolution, and this happened, and it sort of takes its time in the last... 30 pages are like years pass and this is how it is now. And they quickly in, in a, I think on a page, it quickly goes from, they walk on their hind legs, they wear clothes and then they invite people. It's like a very quick transition in it. And it sort of is, um, remin- reminiscent of now of how quickly things can change. And you're just like, I just watched this happen very quickly, but how did this, how did we get here? You know, that's kind of what's scary is that it just happens. Yeah. It, w- it really was so fast because you're right. There are all these sort of like hints to just passages of time like the years passed and we don't really know how long that takes and maybe that's intentional of like you lose track you don't know how long things like this take to happen and in the matter of like a few proverbial pages everything's different one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading it is like this is so nuts to be an observer in this and to watch these pigs like walking on their hind legs this is so crazy how would they be doing that why would they be doing that and then I took a step back from that again and I was thinking like was George Orwell's intention in writing that part of the book to be like it's just as crazy when humans do this Mm -hmm. as crazy as it would be for a bunch of everyday farm animals to watch this like group of ruling pigs strut around on two feet you should feel that it's that crazy as a human to watch a 
crazy person take power of your government. Or when Jared Kushner goes to meetings or and has security clearance, or like Ivanka Trump is is like talking on behalf of the U.S. government to in secret to Goops. You're like, what? How did that happen? <laughs> right. Where did you get those shoes and those pants from? Yeah, it's almost this thought of like stop being so freaked out by this quote unquote fairy story where there's pigs walking around on two feet. And think about the fact that, like, crazier stuff is happening with humans. Mm-hmm. That's Ugh. so terrifying. It's so terrifying. There's one <laughs> other, like, theme that I want to talk about before we kind of start to wrap up. And I love your thoughts on this. There are parts throughout the book where, like, things are going well, right? There's times when the animals have enough food and the construction of the windmill is going well and people are happy. People, fuck. They're animals. <laughs> the animals are the happy. The subjects of the book. The subjects, exactly. Things are good. And at that time, they're, like, not really having to pay too much attention to what Napoleon is doing or what the other pigs are doing. So it's this idea of like when things are going well, you're not going to pay attention to what a radical leader is doing. It's as Mm -hmm. soon as things turn bad in those periods where the animals don't have enough food, where they're having to sleep outside in the snow when the windmill fell down and there's like no promise of it ever being rebuilt. Like I think that's just an interesting commentary. I'm like, yeah, it's really easy to trust your leaders when things are okay. But as soon as you start to see cracks in their plan, that's when you're, you're having to like jump to attention and hopefully hold them accountable. Right. It was specifically to modern politics. It's, oh, we have this, we have this great tax bill, whatever. I now have a hundred dollars more in my, in my, my tax return. It's like, well, what did that hundred dollars cost you? And your hundred dollars is like 7 billion for other people. And also it's like an abusive relationship where, oh, he's a shitty boyfriend, but he gave me a kiss that one time. So I guess I'll stay. It's like this vicious cycle of getting trapped in when you want to get pulled out and things seem great. And then one thing goes bad and you're like, well, that one good thing was really good. And I think it was better than before. I'd rather have this than nothing, which is also another concept. You know, they, a lot of them refer back to, Mm -hmm. well, it's better than when Mr. Jones was there. Yeah. That's sort of their rallying cry. Every time they're about ready to give up, they're like, at least we're not working for anyone else. At least we're working for the other animals. But those other animals are becoming increasingly similar to humans in the same way mm-hmm. that like our government is becoming increasingly similar to a totalitarian government. Mm-hmm. And um, just because we're not like a colony of some other crazy country doesn't mean that we're not becoming a crazy country ourselves. Right. That's sad. Should I move to Canada? <laughs> Montreal is really great. Toronto, Quebec, they got a lot of good shit up there. They have a lot going on, like lots of pros. <laughs> Maybe I can get Canada to start sponsoring SSR. That would be great. Canada tourism. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the last sentences of that article that I mentioned that I kind of want to close out this part of our conversation with is this. Orwell's purpose in writing Animal Farm must surely have been to present the telltale science of totalitarianism in the clearest and simplest terms in order to make sure the populace would steer clear of electing any such ruler in the future. It does not seem to have worked. It definitely did not work. And that's very haunting. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that's sort of like a mic drop on that article right there. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good one kicker. of those. Um, if you don't learn history, then you're doomed to repeat it. Things. Yeah. Amen. Do you think that other people our age should be reading this book, forgetting like our history with reading it for school after we've had this conversation about how much it relates to our lives in 2018? Are you at a point with it where you're like, I think everybody should be reading this book and just kind of stepping outside themselves and experiencing our political climate in terms of a group of animals? 
Yes, definitely. Because I'm someone who I think it's very clear that I'm I, I'm a liberal person um, politically, and um, I, had I, no often, yeah, I had no idea. I know idea. it's a real it's a it's a real surprise that a African American woman who lives in Los Angeles, California, is from and from Chicago is liberal. <laughs> I often get frustrated with this state of the world, and I'm one of those people who's just like, oh, I I don't know what I can do. But the book is a reminder that when you just sort of sit idly by and you don't challenge ideas and you kind of just let things pass that's how this happens. So it's a reminder to not just take things for granted. Like a lot of the problem with fake news is take the time to sit and think and really read and look and ask questions about what you're being told. That's something that I've taken away and to just sort of be a little more active and you really can't give up. You can't and we shouldn't. Did this reading make you appreciate or enjoy this book even more or did you dislike it? I love the book now. You do? Okay. I'm going to bring this up at work. I'm telling everyone we should read it and how it still holds up. I will talk about it nonstop. And I'm going to, I want to be a teacher now. <laughs> I love that answer because most of the time I make people hate books that we read. So no, I'm like it. really pumped that you liked it. I tend to agree. I'm sort of mad at 14 year old Allie for like bitching about reading this book <laughs> so much because reading it now, I'm like, there's so much to learn from it. So I'm really glad we had the chance to revisit it. Really quickly before we wrap up, are there any books that you've read recently that you think that our listeners should check out? doesn't have to be a kid's book. I'm a weird reader where, so I, I'm a TV writer and I spend all my time writing writing fiction and thinking of fake characters. So I only read nonfiction. Interesting. Um, now. So um, the, my favorite book that I read was Mindhunter, which is now a TV show on Netflix. Oh. But I read it before the show. So I want to recommend that book. It's from like 1980. <laughs> Well, I'm going to include a link to it in the show notes in case people want to check it out. I really appreciate you (laughs) taking the time um, to give those recommendations. You are like such the perfect person to talk about this book with. I so appreciate you like figuring out all these crazy parallels. And um, I have a feeling a lot of people are going to read Animal Farm after this after this conversation. They should. I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind to read it again. It's insane. I'm I'm ignorant and I'm still blown away. I don't think I would call you ignorant after this conversation, but like you own that. You own that. (laughs) It's been so fun talking to you. Um, Have a great rest of your day. It's still like really early in the day where Meredith is right now. So she's, she's going to go to work after we've had this like very dark and upsetting conversation. And um, I'm really sorry for screwing up your morning that way. There's no better way to start a morning than to talk about pigs and totalitarianism. Yeah. You wake up and you get woke. Yeah. Have your coffee. (laughs) Think about Donald Trump. And uh, I think you're going to have a great day. I can't wait. Thank you for having me. This was a true delight. Thank you so much (laughs) for being here. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.